Well, good morning, Fullerton Free. Whether you're joining us online around uh, the city or the state or the world or whatever, whether you're joining us right here in the room, it's nice to see your smiling faces this morning. Nice to be with you to worship. And uh, we are uh, continuing in our study in uh, the spiritual disciplines, which is called spring training. I, as we get closer and closer to April 1st, when baseball season will start, I'm getting increasingly excited. I'm also excited about the ways in which we're seeing uh, some of these spiritual disciplines sort of made manifest in our body. I've heard good stories from many of you about trying to move that needle a little bit, right? We've talked about that several weeks uh, here as we've talked about different uh, practices or rhythms, Christian rhythms, things that we can put into practice that both draw us uh, closer to God, help us in our knowledge of who he is, but also help us in the revelation of God. And we're going to be talking about uh, another way in which we reveal God this morning uh, when we talk this morning about the discipline of generosity. Now, as soon as I say the discipline of generosity, there are probably some of you who get a little jittery, right? You get a little bit nervous about this, like maybe this is going to be a conversation about money. Well, let me rest your mind. This is definitely going to be a conversation about money, right? So just go ahead and get freaked out. No, we're, we're not just talking about money, but it would be silly for us to say that when we talk about generosity, it doesn't include money at all. Now that does make us a little bit nervous because all of us have seen abuses in certain ways. We've seen ways in which sometimes uh, religion gets turned into just a fundraising opportunity. We've all seen the ways in which the thing can come off the tracks, right? So it's important for us not to recoil so far away from the idea of generosity that we never pay attention to what we do with what God has given us, and that includes our finances. So while we talk about generosity this morning, I want to say from the outset, I think all of us know that there are ways in which uh, money can become problematic. Our stuff, the things that God has given to us, and the way in which we use those things, I think we all sort of know those things can get tricky. And sometimes a conversation about generosity as a spiritual discipline can get reduced down to an appeal to give money. And that that would be to miss the point of what the Bible teaches about generosity more broadly. Does that make sense? So we don't want to leave money out of it. We shouldn't leave money out of it. But we don't want to make it all about money either. I want to tell you a quick story that will be a decent summary for everything else I'm going to say this morning about generosity. When we talk about generosity and the discipline or the spiritual practice, the habit of generosity, what we have to remember is that foremost, first and foremost, this becomes a conversation about the revelation of Christ and the glory of God. That's what it is more than anything else. We talk about generosity in our own lives. We're talking about the revelation of Christ and the glory of God. Now, that word revelation, I use it a lot, and that might even be a a confusion, a point of confusion for some people. When I talk about the revelation of Christ, I'm not talking about the last book of the Bible, which is a book of uh, apocalyptic literature, a book of prophecy. It's called Revelations. When I talk about the revelation of Christ, what I'm talking about is the individual way that each and every one of us are called to put on Christ to reveal Christ in our thoughts and words and deeds and attitudes so that the people in our circles, the people that we interact with, the people that are watching us most closely, uh, have a clear and a true picture of what Jesus is like. Each and every one of us are called to reveal Christ. And in many ways, we as a body, the church here at Fullerton Free, are also meant to be a revelation of Christ. The scriptures talk about the fact that we are all spiritual stones in a, in a house that's being built for the Spirit of God to reside and in which to display His glory. So we're talking about revelation, that's what we mean. But just to sort of give you a picture of where we're headed this morning, I want to tell you a quick story about generosity. I remember uh, when my son Hank was just a little guy. Hank uh, was into all kinds of different things. But one of the things Hank was really into were these little uh, Thomas the Engine 
tra- you know, like the, the train cars, right? You've seen those. That's a pretty popular thing for a long time. I don't know as a parent if you ever had to buy any of those toys, but those toys are not particularly cheap. There's lots of them, right? There's a, there's a little toy, cast iron toy for everyone, like for the train and the caboose and all the cars. Like there are, there are thousands of these little guys and none of them are cheap. And my son Hank had a few of those. He had a little box that had a bunch of these trains in them and whatever. And that, that was the kind of thing we sort of bought over time. And I remember on one particular day, my, my son Hank, who was just little at the time, had had some friends over. And uh, as his friends were leaving, I noticed that his friends had these trains uh, in their arms and, and they were headed home, right? The trains that I had purchased, that I had worked for, the trains that I had acquired for my son and my other kids to play with. And all of a sudden, these, these kids that had come over to visit, who I didn't have any trouble with them playing with the trains in our house under my watch where I could manage my investment, right? Uh, I didn't have any trouble with that. Now these children are leaving with the trains in their arms, right? And, I, and I, so I just got a little concerned about that, but I, you know, their parents were there. I didn't want to be snatching toys away from children on their way out of the house. So I just kind of watched the trains go home with these other kids. And when it was done, I, I called Hank over and I said, Hank, you know that your friends just took your, your Thomas trains. They just took your trains. And he goes, no, I gave those trains to them. And I was like, oh, you did. And he goes, yeah, they really wanted them. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. I, I, but you like those trains too. He goes, oh dad, you'll be able to buy me more. Right. <laughs> Now, that's a, that's a, we had to have a little conversation about my capability, right? About what I'm capable of and what I'm willing to do. But let me just say, that story is a decent encapsulation of everything the Scripture teaches about generosity. The perception of my son that could say, all these things I have, my dad gave to me, and he gave them to me to give them away, and if I need more, my dad will give them to me. That's the end of the message. I could literally close my Bible and walk away and sit down. Everything I have, my dad gave to me, and he gave those things to me to give them away to others. And if I need more, my dad will give me more. Now, while that isn't strictly true about me with toys, because I just don't have unlimited funds, it is strictly true with God. God models, as we've said in all of these spiritual disciplines, God models generosity. We read John 3.16, which you probably didn't even need Brad to read a second ago. You can probably quote it. But let's take the most popular verse in the Bible and remember something important about God. God loved and gave. For God loved the world so much that he gave. I want you to understand that love is the motivator for giving. That love is the motivator for generosity. Why did Jesus come to the earth? It's because of the love of God. The sacrifice of Christ was prompted and motivated by the love of God. God loved and he gave. In fact, God sets this pattern for generosity all the way from the beginning. In Eden, the Garden of Eden, think about that. The Garden of Eden is a gift from God to mankind. The community that was meant to be established between God and man in the garden was a gift. The covenants of God, right? The Abrahamic covenant or the Mosaic covenant. Those are the generosity of God. God looks at his people and says, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And I will provide for you and take care of you and you will never be in need. So he gives the garden. He gives the covenants. He gives Christ the greatest gift of all time. He gives us his son. Listen, the incarnation of Jesus is nothing if not a demonstration of generosity. It is a picture of grace. God has modeled this all along. Eden, the covenants, Christ. Now for us, in the wake of the saving work of Christ, we have the opportunity to live in the kingdom of God. And we will live with God eternally in his kingdom. Again, a demonstration of grace. Undeserved unearned kindness and favor, generosity, these things flow out of God 
Because that's who he is. Because he is a God of love, generosity is not a thing he has to strive towards or work toward. It's a thing that literally is produced in God all the time. God giving to people, and think about the incarnation here. We think about Christ. We affirm these things, but then we don't necessarily internalize them or model them. God gives us his son, John 3.16 says. God, God is giving his son to people who don't deserve it, who can't earn it, who many times don't, don't appreciate it, and ultimately take advantage of it. Think about that. That what God wanted when he sent Christ was for us to take advantage of him, right? We get really nervous about being taken advantage of, don't we? We're worried that if we're generous, that if we're too giving, that if we let somebody walk away with our trains, we're going to be taken advantage of. What is the death and resurrection of Christ if not God saying, take advantage of me because you cannot save yourself, because you cannot redeem yourself, because we cannot have relationship on your own, Jesus comes to the earth, lives a sinless life, takes the sin of mankind upon himself, and dies in our place, that we would take advantage of his grace, which we don't deserve, and many times don't appreciate, that most of the world considers to be something they don't care about, right? God gives to people who don't deserve it, who can't earn it, who don't appreciate it and take advantage of it. And then, in picturing the grace or the generosity of God, we read these other verses out of 1 John. And you could read uh, you know, one of the major themes of the writing of John in 1 John. Uh, we're just summarizing here in a couple of verses. But listen to what he says in 1 John 2, 5. He says, Whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in, uh, walk in the same way in which he walked. So here's what John is saying. He's saying we can know that our faith in God is true. Our faith in God is real when we walk the way Jesus walked. Well, what does that entail? It entails living a life of love and sacrifice and generosity and peace and grace, right? 1 John three sixteen through 18 says this, By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So when we put these things together, what do we see? That God loved and gave. And if we've been recipients of that love, if we know that love, if we are saved because of his grace, the implication then is that as we receive this love and we come to understand it, we recognize that now in response to that gracious gift of redemption that he's given us, we will want to live like our heavenly father. And the way our heavenly father lives is to live a life of generosity to those who don't deserve it and can't earn it. So how do we know that his love abides in us? When we walk as he did. And how do we walk as he did? As it says here in 1 John chapter 3, when we see others who are in need. We don't close our hearts, but we love not just in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We model these lives of generosity by replicating his generosity in our own life. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 15 says, He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. I think sometimes we get that one a little bit mixed up. We go, he died for me to set me free so I can live for myself, right? I've been set free from sin and death. I know I'm going to go to heaven. I know that God now hears my prayers. I'm going to have, you know, I have, I have this life before I was dead. Now I'm alive and he set me free so I could live and do whatever I want with my freedom. Well, the Bible says that's not the case, that he sets us free. 
in order that we would no longer live for ourselves. Why? Because what did living for ourselves get us? If you think back, living for ourselves gets us what? It gets us death. It gets us separation. It gets us fighting with, the, with one another. It gets us this selfishness and this bickering, bickering and this division. It says he died for us that we would no longer live for ourselves. Well, because we don't have to live for ourselves anymore. Hank doesn't have to worry about holding on to his trains. He doesn't have to fight his friends for the trains because the trains he has, he was given and he knows if he needs more trains, his father will provide them. That is the secret to the discipline of generosity. We no longer live for ourselves, we live for him. But it takes, and you probably are picking this up already, it takes, at at the heart of it, it takes trust. It takes trust that God is true, that he will provide. Now, maybe, to Hank's, uh, maybe Hank was disappointed when I sat him down and said, well, I can't just keep buying more and more and more trains, right? But the reality is that the, that the provision of God on our behalf is limitless. We just sometimes don't believe that. We don't live like we believe it. We, we'll acknowledge it in a, in a Bible quiz, right? If I were to say, how many of you trust in the all-sufficient provision of God? We'd probably get all the hands here, right? Because that's the right answer. Yeah, of course we trust in the all-sufficient provision of God. But functionally, we live like we got to hold on to our stuff because if we give up this stuff, we won't have our stuff. There's stuff we need. Other people, we work for this stuff. They don't deserve our stuff. We shouldn't give this stuff away because what if I need this stuff? He says, well, he died that we would no longer live for ourselves. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, by the way, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is a great couple of chapters to read to look at the idea of generosity. It's Paul encouraging the church at Corinth not to back away from the generosity they were already committed to. And in the midst of a much longer discourse here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich." Well, how many of you in the room are rich? Well, it depends on whose standard you're looking at and whatever. Your inclination might be this morning to go, well, that verse isn't true because I'm not rich. Right? I, I'm struggling to figure out how to pay my bills. I'm trying to figure out how to get my kids through college. I'm trying to figure out how to you know, fix the tires on my car or whatever. Your inclination might be to listen to a verse like that that says, he became poor in order that you might become rich and go, well, that one hasn't come true yet. But the reality is that the riches it's talking about are not necessarily the temporal riches of what you got in your bank account or what kind of car you drive or what kind of house you live in. The riches he's talking about are the riches of becoming an heir, a daughter of the king or a son of the king. He became poor that you might become rich, that you would have everything you need. Do you trust that? Do you believe it? Romans 8, 31 and 32 say this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? How will he not give us all things? The idea here is that we trust in the goodness of God because everything we have, he's given to us. And when we trust in his good provision, when we trust in his presence in our life, in the fact that he will give us everything we need, that he became poor, that we would become rich, that he will provide, that frees us up then to live lives of generosity, to live lives not for ourselves, but for other people. Now, if you're, if you're taking notes this morning, I want to give you, I'm going to give you 10 things generosity does, right? And I know you don't have a journal because this is a different kind of a series. We're going to dive into Genesis in about four weeks. And when we get to Genesis, we'll have our journals again. But right now you have to find a scrap of paper. You'll have to put it on your notes on your phone or whatever. 10 things. And we're going to move through them relatively quickly. So just track with me here. Number one, what does generosity do? Generosity in disciples 
puts Jesus on display. It's what I've already said a couple of times in a couple of different ways. But when you and I live generous lives, we paint an accurate picture of Jesus to other people, right? In the world in which we live, people are very confused about who Jesus was, about what Jesus did. More than that, they're confused about this whole Christianity thing because they've looked at the followers of Jesus and they've become confused. In many ways, the followers of Jesus, sometimes in their lack of generosity, sometimes in their desire to hold on to things and to protect themselves and to make sure they're never taken advantage of, right? Sometimes the the followers of Jesus have actually distorted the picture of Christ. We've actually marred the revelation of Jesus. So when we live a a, a generous life, what ends up happening is that we correct that replication. We we, we no longer mar the image of Jesus. The world can look at us and go, oh, that's that's what they mean by the grace of Christ. I see it made manifest not only in the pages of Scripture, but more importantly made manifest in the lives of Jesus's followers. Number one, generosity, one, one thing it does, it puts Jesus on display. Number two, generosity allows us to participate in the story of God. To participate in the story of God. I want you to think critically with me for just a second, but when Jesus was born, just as one example, when Jesus was born, uh, Joseph and Mary, they go into Bethlehem, they're looking for a place, right? God, God could have just made them a hotel, right? Like a Four Seasons, he could have just snapped his fingers. Oh, here's, here's, here's the, the woman that's going to bear the Son of God. Right? The creator of the universe, the sustainer of all things, is about to be born in Bethlehem. There's no place because of the census that's being taken. We need a good place. God could have created, out of time and simply out of his power, he could have created St. Jude's Hospital. Right? He could have just made it manifest in the middle of downtown Bethlehem in, in the very first century. Could he not? Is that, is that a real, real possibility that he could have made manifest hospital? You know he could have. He could have snapped his fingers in there with technology like nobody's ever seen. He could have made manifest the hospital that will be available in 500 years from now, right? I don't know what that will look like. I'm praying Jesus comes back before 500 years from now, right? But he could have made a hospital. He didn't. What, what happened instead? They're knocking on doors. They're going, hey, do you have a place we can stay? Is there any room in the inn? And all of a sudden, there's this barn, essentially, a hole in a wall with a manger in it for feeding animals. Why is Jesus born in that manger? Is it because God couldn't come up with something better? No, God is giving that innkeeper the opportunity to participate in the story. Think about the little boy with the loaves and the fish, right? You know that story from Sunday school, maybe? Jesus is looking at the crowd and he's going, these people are hungry and they all need something to eat. Could Jesus not have miraculously produced spaghetti dinners for everybody? Of course he could. Utensils, all the breadsticks you can eat. I mean, he could have rocked that, right? What does he do? He goes, what are we going to feed him? Here comes this little boy. I, I got a couple of fish. I got some bread. Why? Why that? Because he wanted to give that boy the opportunity to participate in the story. Think about when Jesus at the triumphal entry comes in. He could have, Jesus could have just ridden in on a heavenly chariot. We know he's going to come back someday with a flaming sword. Could God not have just produced a white charger, a steed? Right? Of course he could have. What does Jesus do instead? He goes, I'll go and find a donkey and a, and a colt of a donkey and I'm going to ride it on the back. Why? Why on the back of the donkey? To give the donkey owner the opportunity to be a part of that story. You know why we know the, the story of the boy with the fishes and the loaves? You know why we ever even think about the innkeeper? You know why we talk about the guy who owned the donkeys? Because when God gave them the opportunity to participate in the story, they did. 
So the question for you and I is this, number two. When I say, hey, we should be generous to put Jesus on display, there's another piece of this is that when we are generous, when we step in, we don't ever give God something he needs. There's never a moment that God's like, oh, I'm so glad that Darren wrote a check and put it in the offering plate because I didn't know how we were going to do all the ministry I wanted to do. Never. He can do it all apart from me. When I write my check, you know what I'm doing? I'm going, I want to be part of your story. I'm going to be a part of the story you're telling. God, you want my donkeys? Here are my donkeys. I got a couple of loaves of bread. I got some fish. I want to be a part of what Jesus is doing in the world. Number two, generosity allows us to participate in the story. Think about the loaves and the fish and the donkeys, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, the manger. God didn't need help. He invited them to participate. And that's what generosity is for us too. It's the opportunity to participate in what God is always doing. I, uh, my grandmother died on Friday, right? It's a weird transition, I know, but I've been thinking a lot about my grandmother. My grandmother had a stool, uh, like one of those fold-up stepladders that she kept in her kitchen. And you think, well, did she, she couldn't reach the top shelf? No, she could reach the top shelf. All that stuff was good. You know how that stepladder was there? Because sometimes me and my cousins were in her kitchen. And when we were, she'd invite us to the counter, right? She'd be baking a cake or she'd be making enchiladas or she'd be making sausage gravy or who knows what she's making. But she would set up this thing and she'd go climb up the steps and come up here to the counter. Now, let me ask you this. Do you suppose there was ever a cake that was better because I contributed to that as a child? Never, right? It was never, it was never better. In fact, she probably had to work twice as hard to include me in the process of mixing up the cake. But you know why she did that? You know why she didn't go, I'm the best at making cakes. Stay out of the kitchen, kids. She wanted to include me. Why? She wanted to spend time with me. She wanted me to be a part of the process so that I could look and go, we bake that cake together. I love my grandmother, right? You see the difference? That's what God's inviting us into. Participation in the story. Not because my grandmother needed help. Not because God needed help. But because he wants us to know the joy of being a part. That's part of what generosity does. Thirdly, generosity actively combats our battle for control. We talked about this a little bit last week. We were talking about Sabbath. The fact that sometimes we don't want to turn loose of our schedule. We don't want to turn loose of our time. Because we don't want to turn loose of control. And I said last week that that control you think you have is an illusion. That when we enter into Sabbath, we're turning loose of something we actually never had. When it comes to our physical stuff, whether it's our money or our time or our talents, when it comes to being generous with what God is giving us, turning loose of our trains, if you will, right? It, it, it is a good practice for us. It actively combats our battle to control. Once Hank sends those trains home with somebody else, then he doesn't get to dictate how they're played with, how they're kept up, whatever. And that's hard for us. We want to hold on to our stuff. We want to hold on to our time. We want to hold on to our money. We want to hold on to our abilities because we want to dictate how those things get used. One of the great things about biblical generosity is that when you turn it loose, it gets used the way God wants to use it and not necessarily the way he wants to. And, and, and that's actually really good for us to turn loose of that control. That's number three. Number four, it's kind of close to this. Fourthly, generosity trains away our propensity toward idolatry, selfishness, and greed, right? The, the part of us that would go, money is everything, or my job is everything, or my gifts and my talents are what make me who I am, right? My time is so valuable, whatever. Any kind of idolatry that might creep in when we try and hold on to our stuff, any kind of selfishness, any kind of greed, the turning loose of those things 
It trains us away from that kind of idolatry. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5 says, Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you or, nor forsake you. This is a very interesting verse. He says, don't be, don't be loving money. Don't treat money like something to be desired or something that you love. Don't turn it into an idol. Why? The answer why you don't have to love money and you can be content with what you have is that Jesus will never leave you. That's very interesting, isn't it? That the equation isn't, hey, don't love money and be content with what you have because I'll give you the speedboat, because I'll make sure you have a mansion, because I'll make sure you're able to put in the swimming pool or whatever. He doesn't say he's going to give us all these physical things that would make us more greedy. What he says is, you don't have to be greedy and selfish because I'm with you. What's the implication? The implication is that we are built to be satisfied by his presence, which is what we talked about last week. So generosity, giving things away, putting these things into play in the story that God is writing, it it pushes us away from our propensity toward idolatry, selfishness, and greed. Fifthly, generosity recognizes God as the owner and giver of all things. In the book of Haggai, which we've studied recently, God says, all the silver is mine and the gold is mine, right? Uh, in, in, the book of, um, uh, in the book of Psalms, it says, uh, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, right? It reminds us that all of these things belong to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7 says, For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Generosity recognizes that God is the owner and giver of all things. I love the, the story. I mean, I don't love the story of Cain and Abel. That's a tragic story. But before that story turns to tragedy, you want to know one of the things I really love? I love the fact that there was something that stirred in the heart of Abel to make a sacrifice to God prior to the commandments about tithe. That there was just something that stirred in Abel where he looked at what he had done. He looked at what he had, at what he had grown. And he went, you know what? I'm going to give to God the best and the first. It says that Abel brought the first and the best to God, and that Cain, it says, brought some in time. Some in time. Eventually, he brought some. Abel brought the first and best. You know why Abel did that? Not because God said, hey, I'm God, I'm kind of a big deal, and I want you to bring me the first and the best. You want to know why Abel brought it? Because he looked at God, and he looked at what he had, and he went, this stuff belongs to God in the first place. I only have this stuff because of God. It makes sense that I would honor him with the first and the best of what I've got. So generosity recognizes God as the owner and the giver of all things. When we hold on to it, we can sometimes sort of pretend that we got this and this is ours and it's ours to protect and to hold on to. Generosity uh, puts Jesus on display, allows us to participate in the story of God, combats our battle for control, trains us away from idolatry and selfishness and greed, recognizes God as the owner and giver of all things. Number six, generosity puts God's faithfulness on display to us. So it's one thing for us on a Sunday morning to go, how many of you, I mean, we sang songs about how many of you believe in the faithfulness of God? Well, yeah, we do, right? We believe in the faithfulness of God. Do you? Well, you know, you know, you want to know how to find out if that's really true. If you really trust him, turn loose of your stuff, turn loose of your stuff. And then you'll know if you trust him. It's interesting in, uh, in the book, uh, let me find it here. Malachi chapter three, verse 10 and talking about the, the temple. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open up the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Sounds kind of funny in the voice of God for him to be saying, test me. I can prove I can prove I can take care of you. 
I can prove that I'll provide everything you need. I can prove that I can fill your storehouses up. You want to know whether or not I can fill your storehouses up? Empty out your storehouses on my behalf. Empty out your storehouses on my behalf and just see if I am who I say I am, God says. Right? So one of the great things about generosity here is that if even if you're sitting here today or you're listening on the screen, if you're thinking, do I trust God? Do I believe in God? Do I believe that God is faithful, that he sees me, that he knows me? Well, one of the ways in which, in which to learn this and to practice this is through generosity. We give things away and watch how God provides. Not only, and here's, here's my seventh point, generosity not only puts God's faithfulness on display for us, but it puts God's faithfulness on display for others. When I live a life of faithfulness, when I live a life of sacrifice, when I live a life of turning loose of my stuff and my things, when I, when I separate myself from all the judgmentalism and all of this that would cause me to hold on to what I have, and I live a life where I'm putting the faithfulness of God to the test, that also allows my neighbors, my children, my co-workers, other people in, in, in the circle around me to look and go, we see the faithfulness of God at work in him. So not only does it give you the opportunity to, 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 to put, see God's faithfulness on display, but it gives those in close proximity to you the opportunity to see God's faithfulness on display. Philippians chapter 4, famously, verse 19 says, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That he will provide everything we need. Number eight, and I know I'm moving through these rapidly, but it's because I've got a couple of things here I want to talk about. Number eight, generosity acknowledges the needs of others. Generosity acknowledges the needs of others. The Bible is filled. In fact, I could have preached the whole message this morning about caring for the needs of the poor, caring for the needs of those who are unable to care for themselves, caring for the needs of widows, caring for the needs of immigrants, caring for the needs of people who are in a tough spot. Galatians 6, 2, I think summarizes it very well. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. I don't know how to make it much more simple than that. Care about each other. And in caring about each other, bearing each other's burdens, the law of Christ is met. You want to live according to the law of Christ? Care about other people. Generosity is an opportunity for you to, uh, for you to acknowledge the needs of other people. Leviticus chapter 25, just one example, verse 35 says, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. So here's what he says. You see somebody in need, give and keep giving. Let him live with you. Let him, you know, let him eat at your table. Feed him and take care of him. And then the why, it's the same thing we've said all morning. Remember, God says, when you were in Egypt and you were oppressed under slavery, how'd you get out of that? I'm trying to remember. Oh yeah, it was me. My power led you out. I delivered you. I'm the one who provided for you when you were in need, when you were hurting, when you were enslaved. And all I'm asking is for you to replicate my generosity in the lives of other people who are in need. So number eight, generosity acknowledges the needs of others. Number nine, generosity requires we steward the rest of our lives with wisdom. Uh, number nine requires that we steward the rest of our lives. Generosity requires that we steward the rest of our lives. What does that mean? Well, it means that if you make a choice to tie the 10th, which by the way is not a biblical requirement for us under Christ, although it's a decent place to start. If you made a decision that you wanted to tie a 10th of your income uh, to, to the work of God in the world, right? 
if you decided that, well, you know what? If you, if you give God a tenth, you're going to you're gonna have to be smart about how you manage your money. You're going to have to steward the rest of your life well. You're going to have to steward the rest of everything else. You're not going to be able to be careless. You're not going to be able to be haphazard. You're not going to be able to just spend on anything and everything. Right? When you choose, and I'm not even today suggesting a tenth is the way to go. For some of you, God might be prompting you to, to give more than that. Ultimately, kind of with Sabbath, we say with Sabbath, hey, it's not really just about a day. It's kind of a life of generosity. I would say that ultimately, when we talk about the principle of generosity, we're talking about dying to ourselves and treating everything we have as God's, right? So, but I don't want to freak you out. I don't want to freak you out, right? But the idea here is that wherever you're starting, it will require faithful stewardship of the rest. You're going to have to be a little bit smarter. You're going to have to be a little more diligent. You're going to have to be a little more wise and discerning about what you do with the rest of God's money that you utilize, right? Does that make sense? It's all God's. But what do you do with the rest of it? Generosity requires we steward the rest of our life with wisdom. And number 10, generosity produces glory for God in good work. Glory for God in good work. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and following here. This is in that same section of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 we've already looked at. But six and following says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he decide, as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So what's the, what does generosity do? It produces good work for the glory of God, that God will continue to provide everything you need, that he will fill up your storehouse, that he will give you a measure pressed down and overflowing, right? When you live a life of generosity, God will give you what you need in order to continue to be generous, to replicate who he is. But what that produces, generosity, one of the things generosity does is it produces glory for God in good work. And that, and that does sort of circle back to what we talk about when we talk about giving in the church. By the way, the idea of giving to the local church where you're a part is not something new. That's not something that televangelists came up with. That's something that God put into place all the way back in the Old Testament. You may have heard of the Levites, right? The Levites were the priestly order. And God made a provision for the people of God to give a tithe in order to support those who were doing the work of the temple, who were doing the work in the tabernacle, right? That they would be provided for that way. And while we would say and affirm that, that those laws are, we're not held to those laws in a strict sense, there is something about the sentiment of God represented there. So when we send out our budget at the church, when we send out, you know, kind of our finances and where our giving is, when we do a, an offering in a service and we say, hey, if God has prompted you to give out of the overflow of your heart, we're not doing something that we concocted. We're looking at a biblical principle, not only laid out in the Old Testament, but one that Jesus reaffirmed. So in Matthew 23, in the midst of all the woes, right, the woes to the Pharisees, and I'll read this one to you really quick. In Matthew 23, um, 23, he says this, this is Jesus he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the other. So here's what he's saying. He goes, oh yeah, you're giving a physical tithe of your stuff. You're giving back to God the dill and the mint and the cumin, but you've neglected, right, these more important issues, these weightier issues, law, the issues of the law, justice, right, mercy, faithfulness. You've neglected those. But then what Jesus says is, you, he doesn't say you should care about justice and mercy and not the dill and the cumin. He goes, you should have done both. 
So don't be confused about the fact that even today, when we, when we look at you and say, if this is a part of the, the family here, one of the places in which you should and can be generous, according to the sentiment of God, historically, and Jesus in the New Testament, is that you can be generous right here for the work that's happening in our community. And there's all kinds of great ways in which we're putting those resources to work. To advance the gospel, to glorify God, to minister to those who are poor and downtrodden and whatever. But, but generosity produces this glory for God and good work. So here's, here's, as we get to the end here, let me just affirm a, a last couple of things. And I, I'm over my time. Like always. I don't even know why I say I'm over my time. You guys know, you guys know when I start. I'm going to be over my time. Whatever. Giving and sacrifice, this generosity, it, you have to be very careful about the motivation. And here's, here's what I'll say in this generosity cannot be motivated by guilt. So it can't be the kind of thing where I go, oh, look at these pictures of all these poor people. Or, oh, you know what? If you don't give, we're going to have to close down one of our buildings or we're not going to be able to, you know, like, no, 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 no. We're not doing that thing, right? Because what? Because if I go, oh, no, if you don't give, what will happen? What does that say theologically? What that says theologically is God needs us to give. And if you don't, you know, maybe the devil wins, right? No, 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 no. Jesus is victorious no matter what, right? So we, we don't give out of guilt. And we're not utilizing guilt to, to provoke generosity in our people. Because what that would ultimately produce is a joyless giving, obligatory giving, resentful giving, and, and ultimately a burden. So there's not a law here. There's not a rule that you have to follow. It's about, it's about being generous like Jesus was generous. In the same way, you don't give because of opportunity, so it's not because of guilt and it's not because of opportunity. So I could also go, hey, if you give, you know, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put your name on, this, on a brick that's going to go on the sidewalk or we'll put a plaque on the side of a building. Or, hey, if you give, then you're the ones who can decide what color the carpet's going to be or whatever. Well, what does that do? On the other side, then it goes, oh, well, I'm going to give because I can get something. Or maybe you've heard people preach, hey, if you give, God will give you the speedboat, right? You put money in the offering plate and you're going to have that mansion and you're going to go on that European vacation and you give to God and look at how, look at how incredible this is going to be for you, right? No, no, no. It's not about what you get, your name on a brick or the speedboat or whatever else. And it's also not about, oh no, everything will flop if you don't help. No, no. The motivation is not guilt or opportunity. The motivation is love, love. I know that seems cliche, but it's the love of God demonstrated to us and then replicated in us. The love of God demonstrated to us and then replicated in us. I want to ask you a question here. Have you ever seen someone so generous that they were miserable? Have you? I I couldn't think of anybody this week. I I genuinely tried. I tried to think of somebody who had just given and given and given. And then you talk to them and they're like, now I'm just so sad. Because I lived like Christ among my neighbors and I gave and now I don't have anything. And now I am going to have to go, you know, like I've just never met that person. I've never met the person that is so generous that they're miserable. You know what that tells me? That God does what he says he'll do. That when we give like God, he makes sure we have what we need. That he gives us an abounding grace so that we can be generous in all ways. God doesn't have a need. There is no obligation or duty. There is also not an opportunity for you. It's an invitation into the life we were designed for. A conduit. We can be a conduit for God's generosity. It's a partnership with him. And I wrote here in my notes the idea of being a local distributor. 
Um, my favorite food, still thinking about my grandmother, my favorite food in the world is a red chili enchilada that my grandmother used to make. By the way, she lived in Albuquerque. So if you've ever had New Mexican red chili, New Mexican enchiladas, that's my favorite food all time. Weird thing is you can get red chili easy when you're in New Mexico. You come to Arizona, it gets a little bit harder to get red chili. You get to California and it's kind of impossible. Like I can't find it very often. But every once in a while, I'll be walking through a store and I'll see some store that's decided to take a chance. The company that makes this red chili is called Bueno, Bueno, New Mexican red chili. And I'll be walking through a Walmart or I'll be walking through another store, a little grocery store somewhere, and I'll see it in their freezer case. And I freak out, right? Because I found a local distributor for something I can't find anywhere else. And I buy up all of it that they have. And then they quit selling it. Inevitably, right? They quit selling it. We have the privilege of being a local distributor of the generosity of God that isn't found anywhere else. Generosity with no strings attached. You know, it, it, it's this, it's this non-judgmental, non-legalistic generosity and grace. We get to participate in that, to be a local distributor. Both you individually and Fullerton Free as a church get to be local distributors of the generosity of God. So the question for us as we finish this morning is this. Are you an admirer of Jesus or are you a follower of Jesus? Because it's one thing to look at Jesus as he's revealed in Scripture and go, man, I really admire that guy. I really admire. I mean, I'm so thankful to have received his grace. I'm glad I'm going to heaven. I really admire Jesus. And and if you're an admirer of Jesus, good. I'm glad. I'm, I'm me too. I'm an admirer of him. But can I just say, when it comes to the discipline of generosity, it's not enough to be an admirer of Jesus. We have to be followers of Jesus, which means we replicate his approach. We replicate the heart of God in our interactions with other people. And what we're talking about here, like with every other practice, with every other discipline, is not that you go from cold to hot. I'm not saying, hey, I want you to go and empty out your bank account and give it to the rescue mission or whatever. Although, if God prompts that in you, knock yourself out. What I'm saying is, let's move the needle. If you're not being generous at all now, if you're not giving at all now, if that has not even occurred to you to, to join in with Christ in the story of what God is doing, if it hasn't occurred to you at all to be a, a local distributor of the heavenly generosity of God, well, let's just move that needle a little bit. Ask God, what will it look like to be more generous tomorrow than I was today? To give more out of my life and resources tomorrow than I did today. That's all I'm asking, as I have with every other spiritual discipline and every discipline that will come. But I think for all of us, we have this opportunity to more faithfully incarnate the generosity of God. Because he loved and gave, we also love and give. Would you pray with me? God, I pray that you would stir in us an excitement about this. When I think about the boy with the loaves and the fish, or I think about the the Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, and the fact that you didn't need the tomb, you didn't need the manger, you didn't need the fish, you didn't need any of that, and yet you invited these people to give what they had to be part of your story. Man, I'm hungry to give what I have to be part of your story. Thank you for that opportunity. Help Help me to live a life of generosity. Help us to be a church that is a local distributor of heavenly goodness. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.